Sorry, I just have a helicopter overhead. It will probably leave soon. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to Twill, the Week in Health Law, the Elizabethan Work Requirement Podcast of Record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on January 19th, 2018. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis, joined by my co-host who, whatever he says in print, just can't live without his robot butler. And his name is... Frank Pasquale, with the remains of the day at uh, Baltimore, uh, at the University of Maryland School of Law in Baltimore, Maryland. That's your name, but what's the name of your butler? <laughs> Oh, jeez. I'm not going to say Jeeves. I don't know. <laughs> I'll be brainstorming that. You know, there's actually a um, an AI out there now that will help you pick uh, names for babies, I think. I don't know. I'll try to put that in the show notes. Have you tried the Google Arts and Culture app? I am dreading what I will be matched with. What, have you tried it? <laughs> yeah, you take, you, take, you take a selfie and then the AI matches you with a piece of art. <laughs> it matched me with a really old fat guy. So I guess AI does work in, <laughs> in, in the Reich Museum in Amsterdam. So uh, I, I, I feel I feel somewhat good, not about the match, but the fact that I'm hanging in the Reich Museum. <laughs> you know, and by the way, I'm glad you're in Indiana because if you were in Illinois, you couldn't use it. I don't think it's available in Illinois because of the face recognition law there. Oh, now there's an interesting observation. See, listeners, we can always bring it back to law. So <laughs> Yes, we can. Yes, we can indeed. All right. So uh, it's just the two of us today, uh, but it's been a pretty busy couple of weeks. So we've got quite a lot of stuff to cover. Let's begin in litigation. And I'll take us back to December of 2017, an opinion from the Supreme Court of California, style TH against Novartis Pharmaceuticals. And it's the latest twist in the saga about products liability for defective warnings on generic bioequivalent drugs. So if you recall, Frank, these are what we call the Hatch-Wackman Act drugs, for which the generic manufacturer successfully filed um, an abbreviated new drug application, an ANDA. Part of that application process involves the generic manufacturer showing that it's using the same labeling as the brand name manufacturer. Then when the warning is argued to be deficient and the generic drug has caused harm, you run into a preemption issue. And you may recall the Supreme Court cases Wyeth and Levin from 2009 Cleaver against Mensing in 2011. And the upshot of those cases was that the generic manufacturer's duty was only, in Mensing's words, quote, an ongoing federal duty of sameness, unquote. In other words, the generic manufacturer had to ensure that its warning label was the same and continued to be the same as the brand name manufacturers. Now, because, and it's an exhausting tale, I admit it, because generic manufacturers can't change the warning, state products liability actions against them, therefore, are preempted. And even the majority in the Supreme Court in those cases was somewhat sympathetic, but punted it to Congress, where, of course, nothing has happened. Now, this case is slightly different, or it's a twist, 
Because here the action was brought against the brand name manufacturer, even though the drug used by the plaintiffs was the generic. And also, just to complicate matters, the brand name manufacturer had also sold the drug on to another company. The court in this case held that brand name drug manufacturers have a duty to use ordinary care in warning about the safety risks of their drugs, regardless of whether the injured party, in reliance on the brand name manufacturer's warning, was dispensing the brand name on the generic version. And they said that just because they'd sold it, that didn't make any difference because it didn't terminate uh, liability for foreseeable injuries. Now, this case may turn out to be a bit of an outlier, Frank. I think there's even a Maryland case going the other way. But I think it does offer yet another window on ever-present healthcare fragmentation here in uh, compensation for drug defects. Absolutely. And I will actually be re-listening to that, Nick, uh, maybe a few times because it is an area of law that... I have found uh, confounding. It's a very, uh, as you've noted, it's incredibly complex. And to sort of think about how it reminds me of, you know, the whole ERISA morass where you have uh, decisions going a certain way, later judicial regrets, uh, trying to push things to be a little bit more fair, and then, you know, reconsiderations about those regrets. So, yeah, it's it's, a thank you so much for keeping us all up to date on that one. Well, I have a simpler uh, situation to describe for my uh, piece of litigation uh, this week. It is a company I've actually brought up before. It's called Centene. And there was a big Bloomberg uh, article about them as the insurer of last resort for Medicaid and for lots of folks on Obamacare exchanges. And one of the things that was flagged in that article, um, which I'll put up in show notes, is the very narrow networks of physicians, uh, restricting patients to having not a full complement of the physicians available in their area, but only a smaller panel. And I worried about that as a uh, possibility. And we now see that there is a lawsuit that was described in the uh, New York Times on January 11th, an uh, article by Reed Abelson, that is a private lawsuit um, filed in federal court where people who bought policies from Centene claim that the company doesn't provide adequate access to doctors in 15 states. In terms of um, color commentary, it's really interesting. They talk about one particular uh, insured individual who was having a very difficult time. He was a, a periodontist in Round Rock, Texas. But he's, he's the insured individual. And um, he's paying $1,200 a month um, and then found that he could almost never see a doctor when he uh, was assigned directly a doctor's office by Centene. It turned out he was assigned an obstetrician gynecologist. Um, and then when his wife tried to find a doctor, when she had an earache, she was on the phone with the plan for five hours before she was sent to a clinic where she was treated by a nurse. So what's the big picture here? Well, one part of the big picture is that at least Washington State tried to do a regulatory intervention to uh, force uh, more adequate networks here. And that's certainly an option. But another, I think, big picture thing is to think about what will be the strategy of Alex Azar and uh, others uh, in the Trump administration with respect to these sort of insurers of last resort. Will they keep them going because they help further uh, stratify the healthcare system and sort of acclimate uh, those on the lower end of the income scale to worse and worse care that can be provided more and more cheaply? Or will they go after them and sort of try to uh, force them to have higher standards and thereby perhaps uh, crash the only uh, insurer left in many ACA exchanges? This is going to be a very uh, easy choice for the Trump administration because I think either way they win. And I think it helps 
helps illuminate some of the ways in which the Affordable Care Act was perhaps doomed from the start because of this structure of essentially inviting in bottom feeders to take care of uh, many of the people on the exchanges. We've discussed these kinds of issues with friends like Aaron Fizet-Brown and others before. There was, at a time, I thought, some sense that we were going to see some state regulation. You mentioned Washington, obviously, state laws on this. But I haven't seen too much lately on state initiatives trying to deal with this problem. We did see a little bit of activity regarding the publication of directories and so on being mandated by the states, uh, only to find out just how deficient those, uh, out of date those directories were. Have you seen any more on on state laws with regard to this? I am so glad you asked about that, Nick. Just to back up a, a little bit, I remember a year or perhaps two years ago, there was a uh, talk of the nation NPR program where they were talking to someone who was representing America's health insurance plans or uh, another lobbyist group for private insurers. They're bringing up some many of the issues that Aaron has been writing about so well for so long. And someone on the program said, at the very least, you need to be able to provide very, like, completely up-to-date lists of which doctors are in network and who's not to anyone consulting your website. The position put forward by the private lobbyist for the health insurance companies was that that would be an intolerable burden upon them, that the uh, list of doctors are constantly changing. They have no way to potentially be up-to-date at any given time with whose doctor, which doctors are actually in network in which are not, which hospitals are in network or not. This was just too great an administrative burden and, and should be resisted by anyone at the state level. So my sense is that perhaps what's going on here is that, you know, given the sort of scorched earth tactics of the private insurers to, you know, essentially reserve to themselves carte blanche uh, with these stripped down low level plans, that that's one of the reasons you're not seeing much. The other reason I think is that it's just very hard to define, right? I mean, it reminds me of some of the issues we, we discussed when we were talking about how antitrust and healthcare and you know what's what's too much of a market for an insurer to control and what's too little and things like that it's just how are they really going to go down so fine-grained and say well having one pulmonologist 45 miles away is too little but having two that are 30 miles away is enough um you know having a wait of three months is too long but two months is just right etc what this really highlights to me are some of the deep deep failures of the sort of stratification model here, where they are putting incredible burdens on regulatory bodies that are already completely overwhelmed by the uh, uh, tasks that they've taken on. So, no, I haven't heard much, but I will definitely be looking for uh, more efforts to essentially add a few more layers to this Rube Goldberg uh, device of the ACA exchanges. does, of course, also uh, raise the contrast with employer-provided insurance uh, that you know is, is, is not something that I am particularly fond of as to why we have a system that imposes uh, employers in the middle of uh, health insurance choices and so on. But at least in that context, you do have a, a learned intermediary, the employer, who can actually watch out for these kinds of things, whereas um, exchange uh, customers and so on uh, are far less likely to be able to do so. I agree with you that on that 100%. And I think that also highlights the recklessness of some of the, you know, apparently inside, inside folks uh, who are drafting the ACA or planning it, who were hoping that the Cadillac tax would get rid of private, of uh, employer-sponsored insurance, right? Because the idea was that 
over time, more and more plans, just thanks to medical cost inflation, would be hit by the Cadillac tax. And once it gets, once you got that 40% excise tax on your plan, of course, the employers are going to dump a lot of people onto the exchanges. What they didn't realize was that there could be something worse than the sometimes faithless agents of employers, their employees, <laughs> agents of employees, the uh, employer, there could be something worse than that. And that would be the uh, a poorly run state exchange. So, yeah. Do we have our show title? Oh, in, healthcare, in healthcare, there's always something worse. Yes, exactly. So I had one other piece of litigation to report on, and it's something that I've been following for several years. It is the saga about metal-on-metal hips. And these are uh, an innovation that was put forward uh, by Johnson & Johnson many years ago, over 10 years ago. And these hips turned out to be quite disastrous for many people who got them. There's a description in a uh, New York Times account of a recent $247 million trial verdict uh, for people who use the hips that describes someone who had one implanted, it led to excruciating pain when they finally came and tried to remove it or tried to look at exactly what was happening. Uh, And I'll quote from the article, when the surgeon sliced into his hip, what he saw looked like a crankcase full of dirty oil. Tissue surrounding the hip was black. Cobalt leaking from the hip had caused a condition called metallosis that not only destroyed local muscle and tendon, but also hurt the patient's uh, heart and brain as well. Okay. So this is the stakes of what we're looking at with the wild west of the medical device industry. And we've seen the sort of like too little, too late type of judgment here. Of course, you know, many of the people ultimately responsible for this are not going to pay any sort of serious uh, damages or have any serious consequences at all. But what I think is really critical here is to note that it really points up the needs for a much more comprehensive and well thought through federal regulatory apparatus with respect to medical devices. And I, I just will highly recommend this article that we'll put in show notes that tries to show the scope of the problem and to suggest what could be done as a solution. The article is by a person named Jeannie Lenzer, who's the author of The Battle Within Us, America's Untested, Unregulated Medical Device Industry and One Man's Struggle to Survive It. Well, I thought I'd take the conversation to uh, another area that, uh, at least to my ears, feels like metal grinding against metal. (laughs) As we uh, look at uh, Kentucky, uh, which uh, is retaining its place under Governor Bevan as the backsliding leader in all things Medicaid, congratulations. Kentucky in getting the first work requirement waiver, the first I'm sure of many. Now, we've already seen over the last few years, uh, for example, uh, with regard to Indiana's uh, HIP 2.0, we've seen evidence-based studies on the negative impact of copays and other innovative, in quotes, ideas that states have come up with, uh, with regard to Section 1115 waivers. Clearly, these types of requirements end up reducing the Medicaid rolls. Surely, Frank, that's not the purpose here, is it? (laughs) Oh, no. So just today, uh, Margot Sanger-Katz has a great uh, upshot piece in The Times looking at documentation requirements. And she's got some great examples of prior Medicaid and CHIP state plans that either reduced or increased paperwork and documentation and so on. And there is clear correlation with the number of beneficiaries as states make those changes. Friend of the show, Adam Gaffney, even chipped in on Twitter today with the excellent example of the German government that back in 2006 instituted 
a 10 euro copay, only to conclude that it was just a complete waste of time and money, so in 2012 reversed it. We should be so lucky. Perhaps the most Orwellian, or do we now just simply uh, say Trumpian aspect of this story so far, is that the Kentucky governor, keen to keep his place at the lead here, has signed an executive order terminating the state's Medicaid expansion if any part of his Medicaid waiver is successfully challenged in court and he can't get an unfavorable final judgment overturned on appeal. I frankly can't see that stopping the legal challenges and it might even ups really upset some federal district uh, judges. And, uh, you know, if litigants need any more help, a letter from, I think, 29 Democratic senators to the acting health secretary over the last couple of days read, as noted by the AP, quote, like a memo to legal groups preparing a court challenge. Um, <laughs> the senators made sure they cited the Medicaid law as specifying that the purpose of the program is to provide medical assistance to eligible individuals whose income and resources are insufficient and so on. It didn't uh, uh, say anything, the statute, about these thinly veiled statements by CMS about uh, uh, how uh, waivers are going to and work are going to pull people out of poverty and so on. Such nonsense. Yes, these work requirements are really getting Baroque as well. I mean, I saw it with Andy Slava had noted that there was a potential for a literacy test. Uh, there's this uh, passion for financial literacy training, other forms of training. And of course, this is all following in the footsteps of the 90s welfare reform, where Bill Clinton, uh, you know, cooperated with uh, Republicans to essentially make it open season for the states to uh, reshape welfare toward from something that was about supporting the poor to something that was about like positing that the poor were defective in some ways and had to be controlled, changed, surveilled, altered. And I just keep thinking as I watch these Medicaid requirements rolling out of Kiara Bridges' work, our former show guest Kiara Bridges, who wrote about the poverty of privacy rights, uh, and the long interview that she had at the beginning by, a, uh, I think it was a Medicaid caseworker um, or a social worker uh, who was looking at Medicaid benefits and other benefits for an individual, where they got into just extraordinary detail about, you know, who was the father of her children? Was he still in the picture? Were they going to get married? What was their plan for the future? Was he working, etc.? And, you know, I think this is just, it's it, the other side of this that I think is really important for everyone to realize is that what part of this is about making people who should be the beneficiaries of government help, making that government help so conditional, so complex, so difficult to access that it turns them against the idea of government. So it's not just about sort of uh, the GOP trying to marginalize or further marginalize a uh, power group with very little power. It's also about sort of teaching people, the hidden curriculum here is teaching people that the state is not here to help you. It's actually here to undermine and surveil you at every turn. And that's part of a larger political project. And I think it's very important to that that be on the table as the real reason for this, because clearly the reason is not an effort to help people uh, on Medicaid prosper and, and uh, do better economically. Well, there's classism as well, isn't there? Yes. Um, or or the, the, the great uh, financial divide. I mean, uh, it, it seems on its face that a Medicaid requirement of, you know, a couple of dollars a month as a copay seems, you know, not unreasonable. We have copays in our insurance. But the, the complete failure to understand that this population, 
may not have a checking account. They may not have a way of mailing this in or making it a regular payment. And that just seems to uh, completely escape uh, these so-called policymakers. Oh, that is such a great point and something I haven't seen in almost any of the coverage here. And yes, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I was actually going to tie it to this book by Charles Corellis called The Persistence of Poverty. And he has this really interesting thesis, which is to say that there's a way in which when you're poor, there is just so many, there are so many burdens and they're so difficult that it becomes more and more, as more and more burdens are piled onto your plate, it becomes easier and easier to just give up. And he uses the example, it's a very, you know, um, I don't want to say homely, but sort of, it's a, it's a very intuitive, a direct example of if you've got a plate full of, a, a sink full of dishes versus a sink with one dish, it's a lot easier to go after the one dish than it is to just sort of steal yourself to deal with all the dishes. And this same type of work, the same philosophical insight that Corellis had has been experimentally verified by Sendel Mullenathan and his behavioral economics research about, you know, the difficulty, the cognitive burden of being poor. And all of these paperwork requirements and other things are just adding to that cognitive burden. And, you know, frankly, I think that's part of the purpose. I mean, I really, I'm writing something up for the Law and Political Economy blog this week that's just about how important it is to realize that, you know, it's it's not really appropriate anymore to talk about the stated purpose as being the real purpose for these programs. The real purpose is, is in many ways a punitive one. It's what Will Davies calls punitive neoliberalism. And you see a lot of that in Britain as well, where you have ATOS uh, qualifying people as fit for work, and then the people die within days of being declared fit for work. You know, So I think another thing that should be looked at right now is the comparison between the Medicaid work requirements and the wave of scandals that hit Britain after the Tories imposed uh, ATOS privatized uh, review entity review on disability claimants. Well, now um, out of the frying pan into the fire, perhaps, um, we have a uh, conversation. Oh, that's, uh, that's, that's so sad. <laughs> I, mean, let's, uh, I guess uh, something that we've been covering for a long time is being sad to something that's newer for us uh, to cover. Uh, the um, there's a good article in the Wall Street Journal on the long-term care crisis, uh, how the long-term care business is having more and more difficulties. Uh, there's also a piece by Harold Pollack in uh, the American Prospect that I'll link to that's on the sort of problems of disabilities and the failure of the Class Act or the problem of uh, we really just don't have a good enough disability policy in the U.S. for healthcare, and that's affecting how we treat the elderly. And the Wall Street Journal article gives a good rundown to follow up on some of our conversation with Paul Osterman last week about who needs long-term care. And for those over 65, at least 15% will need five years of care or more. And as we all know, this could be financially devastating. The problem is that, you know, whatever we once had in terms of uh, insurance policies or the ability for a private market to really deal with this, it appears that that private market is breaking down and that even sort of state assistance, other forms of assistance that were supposed to help that market hold together, but they're breaking down. It does appear to be the type of problem where you really need to have a national or at least a state level solution because people uh, just can't really save for it on their own. And insurers are not in the business of charity, are not really interested in you know, trying to lure in tons and tons of people for these long-term care policies, when, especially when the potential for longevity risk and other forms of highly expensive care risk loom on the horizon. Uh, by the way, I just saw there was a report from the actuary of Singapore about the problems that uh, longevity risk are imposing on the Singaporean pension system. 
you know, so if they're having a problem, we're certainly having a problem. And I think that articles like this really help show the difficulty that we face in long-term care, something we need national leadership on, and we're just not getting. Part of our discussion back in episode 122 with Dr. Osterman was with regard to reimbursement and the sort of the odd relationship between Medicaid and Medicare in that context. And uh, just uh, the last day or so, there was an interesting piece, I think, from uh, Kaiser Health News talking about how some home health agencies stay away from Medicare patients. They worry that if they take on Medicare patients, they might end up not getting paid or worse, they'll attract the attention of Medicare auditors who might deny payments because of suspected billing fraud. So everything says that, you know, with the right physician notes and records and so on that uh, show the eligibility, there should be Medicare here. But the system conspires against that payment model. Yes, that's right. And, you know, this is something that I've been thinking a lot about in terms of the activism by the Washington Post four years ago about discharges from for-profit hospices. And the bottom line of the series by Peter Wariski was that fraud enforcers should look really close at hospices because there's a lot of people getting out of there who didn't die within six months. And I remember we talked about this with Sam Halabi earlier on a show that was maybe two years ago. I forget, but um, I'll definitely be consulting his work again. But I think what your what this Kaiser Health News story shows is that it is incredibly difficult to get this balance right. On the one hand, you don't want to give carte blanche to entities to just uh, take as much money as possible once they've uh, taken the care of an individual. On the other hand, um, it seems as though the fraud authorities and other uh, forms of accountability can be so stringent that they just scare people away. And I think that's going to be just part of this pendulum swing in our discourse on uh, fraud and abuse over the next several years is how to get this uh, balance right. On to a slightly different uh, issue. I guess in our modern world of tribalism-infused policy and legislation, we're used to some pretty outrageous branding of statutes, which uh, actually seem to sort of claim often through their their name and labeling to do the opposite of what we actually suspect they, they, they're going to do. <laughs> but even in that uh, world, there's something truly monstrous about the Department of Health and Human Services' new civil rights division that is going to protect healthcare workers who refuse to provide services that run counter to their moral or religious convictions, even if those services involve fulfilling persons' legal rights. The uh, HHS Acting Secretary, uh, Eric Hagen, uh, where a few days uh, before the confirmation of Azar still as we speak, noted that many of the nation's hospitals, clinics, and hospices are run by faith-based groups that oppose procedures like abortion and sterilization. Quote, for too long, too many of these healthcare practitioners have been bullied and discriminated against. I find that a shocking statement. It brings to mind some of the reproductive rights discussions we've had here with Liz Sepper, episode 54, Alta Charo, um, episode 114. But this sort of, this spin just is wrong, Frank. It is really troubling. And I think yet again, we have the problem of the ostensible rationale 
and the hidden uh, rationale. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, and, and it's uh, just over and over again. It's if, if we had administration, I think that, you know, clearly cared about what uh, Cardinal Joseph Bernardine called the seamless garment, a sort of consistent ethic of life in terms of taking care of the least among us and listening to the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops when they, you know, expressed extreme reservations about uh, the type of healthcare plans that were being pushed both by the congressional Republicans and the White House, it would be easier to take this type of rhetoric seriously. Given that there's been a complete rejection of those forms of the social justice teaching of the Catholic Church or other forms of social justice teaching that ostensibly this uh, new civil rights crusade uh, relies on, you know, and of course they're ignoring the much larger problems of civil rights and healthcare that Rakaia Yerby and others have talked about in terms of disparate uh, health disparities, etc. That clearly must be part of any sort of health civil rights agenda, but that's all on the back burner here. So again, it just appears to be the most extreme cynicism. And, you know, one of the saddest things of the current political climate is the degree to which that cynicism is is just not only enabled, but celebrated by many parts of the evangelical community. Well, I hate to end the uh, the pod on, on such a, a, a downer note as that. So uh, why don't we just do one more story and talk about the increase of the uninsured population as a, as a feel-good finish? <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's all relative, isn't it? Yes. So a rather odd story, courtesy of Vox's Sarah Cliff, about the rise of the uninsured population during 2017. Um there were 3.2 million fewer Americans with health insurance in 2017 compared to 2016, the first decline since the Affordable Care Act. And, you know, uh, long-time uh, listeners will probably go, ah, oh, here's another sabotage story. Well, not so fast because the timing's wrong, isn't it? Um, uh, much of uh, what we th- have labeled as sabotage is going to reduce the numbers for next year. How much of an impact could it have had on the 2017 numbers? Uh, Another oddity that uh, Cliff points out is that the number of uninsured increased, even though unemployment was decreasing. Yet you would expect them to rise and fall um, uh, uh, in uh, in sort of rough uh, uh, unison, at least as as employment uh, uh, decreases, you would expect the number of uninsured to decrease. In fact, the population that most felt the uh, decrease in the number of insureds was the group earning less than 36,000. And the article sort of suggests that maybe the promise of policy change or churn had some sort of influence. Cliff interviewed a friend of the show, Craig Garthwaite, who thinks the data might reflect sort of the Trump's administration's constant talk. And that even if the action didn't come, uh, at least until the end of the year, it still might have been a nudge to some Americans who just decided it wasn't worth renewing their coverage. Anyway, there's a lot of dispute out there in the numbers and Cliff's uh, piece uh, covers that well. But uh, it is something of an oddity. And I think we're going to see a lot of bouncing uh, in numbers as this sort of uh, churning and, and changes in policy and then reverses of policy with regard to insurance 
is just going to be so demoralizing for those uh, needing this coverage. And in, and it is like things like the Kentucky program uh, end up uh, uh, reducing the number of uh, persons getting health insurance quite dramatically. Yes. And I think that's the purpose. And I think it was, you know, we saw the tax plan, Tax Cut and Jobs Act or whatever it was called uh, in December also, you know, was able to get past the CBO in part because uh, the repeal of the mandate was modeled to reduce the number of insured. I would love to look at exactly how that was modeled, but uh, clearly that the, they're, they're not Nostradamus, but they probably got that right. I think there is worse to come. I'm sorry, folks. Uh, there's a covered California report that came out today um, suggesting there's going to be uh, quite a lot of increases, maybe 15 to 30% increases in the, uh, the statewide market because of the policy changes, the removal of the individual mandate, continuation of reduced marketing spend for the federal marketplace, um, and of course, the implementation of these goofy association health plans uh, and short-term limited duration plans that are going to uh, remove good risks from the the overall risk pools. Oh, yes. Yes. Another end, of course, uh, another tool for uh, bottom feeder employers and others to uh, corrode and corrupt the idea of insurance so that people are sort of taught that, oh, uh, this really skimpy plan uh, counts as insurance. And uh, yeah, another part of the political battle to redefine what insurance actually consists in. So what's your what's your cheerful big finish, Frank? I, have, I actually have one more story where I have, it's a horrific story, but has one litigation related point that might be positive, which is that Apparently, there was a uh, trial over Olympus duodenoscopes, which are snake-like tubes, and uh, I think that they lost the first round, but apparently there's going to be a retrial, in part because during Discovery, Olympus gave lots of documents that were in Japanese uh, to the uh, plaintiffs, and they didn't translate them. And so uh, this sort of sharp practice of uh, not really doing the Discovery well, or, you know, I guess uh, (laughs) will result in sort of a blowback against them. Uh, And uh, I think that seems like a... That's, to me at least, from a very narrow lawyerly perspective, that is a uh, tiny silver lining in in what was a pretty horrific saga of at least, I think, 30 people dying from uh, the superbug that was apparently part of these scopes and also apparently uh, was worried about by people in corporate headquarters uh, well before the problem became uh, as massive as it became. Dear listener, I, I, I don't think we've provided much lightness today. But, you know, future shows may have some. In fact, uh, I just want to foreshadow that I think one of our future guests will talk about uh, her testimony before a California commission on sort of improving state health care there and covering more folks. So I'm really looking forward to that. And we're staying cheerful. Yes, yes. Yes, we are. And that was The Week in Health Law. We post our show notes at twirl.com. You can contact me at Nicholas Terry on Twitter, where I'm also miserable. And Frank? <laughs> I am spreading dystopian memes at Frank Pasquale on Twitter. (laughs) Thank you for joining us and have a legally interesting but healthy week.